Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are back in the book of Romans, but we're actually going to start reading this morning from the book of Hebrews. We'll get to all that in a moment. We've been out of Romans for a couple of weeks because of our guest preacher last week, who I thought did a very good job. And then um, the week before was homecoming. Those of you who were here for our homecoming communion service, that service really personified what I have always desired out of GCA. Uh, It was a very satisfying morning for me as a pastor, and I hope for all of you. Today, by the way, is Cinco de Mayo, which means it's not only... Christian's graduation party, but it's also the 19th anniversary of the day I was ordained into the ministry by David Morris and Elder Ward. And nobody's throwing me a party, (laughs) Christian. Next year. I got to wait a year. I got to live another year. I have for these almost 18 years that GCA has been a public church and for several years before that in teaching and preaching in various places during my interim pastorship, all of that, it has always been my goal and it has always been my firm belief that we needed to have an appropriate amount of emotional response, but the emotional response I was shooting for was a response to the word. Paul is very clear in speaking to Timothy and tells him, preach the word. So it's very clear what it is we're supposed to preach. We're supposed to preach the Bible. What does the Bible say? The only way to accomplish that is to actually read the Bible. And that means verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week by week, Paul says, in season, out of season, be instant, be ready to do it, no matter what, just preach the word. So my goal has always been that through preaching the word, eventually that word would so inhabit our hearts and our thoughts and our spirits that it would also move our emotions. I don't like emotionalism for emotionalism's sake. If you don't have a firm grounding in what the word says, but then you get all emotional, what you have is, well, Pentecostalism. What you have is that sense of, woohoo, I got to have a great feeling, and I'm going to come back to your church next week because I had that great feeling. And you end up chasing a feeling instead of chasing what the word actually says. But if you just have 
the sound doctrine teaching and it never gets to your emotions, if it never touches your heart, then you get what people call the frozen chosen. We just know doctrinally that we're saved, but we don't want to show it. We're not going to say amen or hallelujah, and we're not going to have any feelings about it. So the balance between what the word says, the genuine doctrine of God, everything the word says, even the difficult stuff, even the hard to understand stuff, that teaching is all meant to be shared with the church. So that's why we do go verse by verse through books of the Bible, so that the whole of the word of God is actually shared with the church. But then it does my heart a lot of good when I see that it also affects our collective emotions. And a couple of weeks ago, Tom and I use this phrase often, the king was present. I think a couple of weeks ago, the king was not only present, but we kind of all knew it. And that's a, a good feeling. That makes me think after 19 years since my ordination, 18 years since GCA has become a public church, that kind of makes me think, oh, good, it's working. The word of God is doing in this body what the word of God is meant to do. And I have always believed that if I just kept pounding the word of God, it would do its work. And it does. So thank you all for... 19 years of supporting this, 18 years of supporting GCA as a building, and this year you even gave it a facelift. Nobody gave me a facelift, but at least GCA got a facelift this year. So we continue on, and I appreciate it. Now, we're in Romans 5. And in order to understand Romans 5 from verse 12 to verse 21 about, in order to understand it, there are big theological concepts that I have to kind of put in place. And I'm going to try not to be too staunchly doctrinal, but we need to kind of understand this to understand Paul's theology. That section reads almost like a parenthesis. That section of Romans 5 almost feels like Paul kind of wandered off for a moment. And Paul just decided to spend some time comparing Adam and Jesus. And then he went down a list of things where he compared Adam and Jesus, Adam and Jesus. I don't really think it's a parenthesis. I think it's his transition into what's coming up in chapters 6 and 7 because he's really going to bear down now on sin and how we are all sinners and how truly heinous sin is. And he's going to talk again about the law and how the law simply cannot justify you. So, so far in the book of Romans, we've seen Paul say, everybody, Jew and Gentile, are both sinners. And the answer to that problem is Christ. But now he's going to start extrapolating on that reality. He has spelled out the problem. He has spelled out the solution. In so doing, he has already given us the gospel, the good news. 
the realization that we are desperate sinners and we do have an exceptionally good Savior. He has already laid all that out. Now he's going to start digging down into the details. And in order to do that, he has to make this transition where we see that this has always, always been the plan of God. The first man, Adam, way back then in the garden, was already, according to Paul, typifying Christ. It was already a type. It was already a foreshadow of something to come. Well, in what way is Adam a type of Christ? That's what we're going to talk about a bit. And then he's going to talk about what Adam did to the human race and how we as human beings are all guilty because of what Adam did. And even though we didn't all sin the same way Adam did, even though we all didn't have our opportunity in the Garden of Eden, even though we weren't individually told, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nevertheless, we are all still sinful. Proven by, according to Paul, proven by the fact that we all die. The wages of sin is death. Everybody dies. Ergo, everybody's sinful. But then Paul's going to get, by the time we get into chapter 7, he's going to get into how genuinely heinous sin really is. How pervasive it is. And really, how it affects us on every level of life. So much so that it actually lies to us. And we listen. Here, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's, let's pick a popularly known sin. Let Abortion. Okay. So, we all know what the Bible says. We all know what the Word of God says. We're preaching the Word of God. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Even people who don't go to church know that the Bible must say, somewhere in it, it says, thou shall not kill. People know that. They know that's what the Bible says. But then they'll think of the exception. The Bible doesn't offer an exception. But they will justify their behavior based on their exception. And they will say, thou shall not kill. Absolutely, that's what the Bible says. Unless it's a baby. And then the exception is, unless that baby is part of the mother's body. Which, by the way, scientifically is a lie. The baby has its own blood type. The baby has its own genetic code. Scientifically, it is completely separate from the mother itself. It's a different body that also contains life in and of itself. But the excuse becomes, the justification becomes, well, it's the woman's body and she can do whatever she wants with the body. So that becomes the excuse. The Bible says don't kill. But the exception is, the excuse is, except under these situations, except if it's a baby, except. And you can really extrapolate that out to pretty much every sin there is. People who don't go to church know that the Bible says something, at least, about being sexually pure. The Bible obviously talks about that. And then people justify. Well, see, in my case, it doesn't mean exactly that for me. It probably means that for everybody else, for, you know, for all of you. But see, my situation is different. And in my situation, I'm still going to engage in this particular uh, 
sexual thing because I've justified it. I'm fine. I'm good. You get the picture? Thou shall not steal. Everybody knows that. Don't steal. Yeah, but see, in my case, it was just a little thing. I just stole a little thing. Or I only did it once. Okay, maybe twice. Okay, we're just so good at justifying ourselves. Okay, what's my point? Where does that tendency to justify ourselves come from? It comes from our pride. It comes from our ego. It comes from our self-sufficiency, which means it comes from the fact that we're sinners. So our sinfulness causes us to excuse our sin because our sin lies to us. And we say, well, our sin just isn't that sinful. Okay, so let's talk about how sinful sin really is. How holy is God? Completely holy. Completely holy. If he is completely holy, then every sin is a sin against him. Every sin is an encroachment against him. Every sin is a shortfalling of how holy God is, and he says you have to be as holy as he is in order to get into heaven. And so if you really want to know how bad your sin is and how pervasive it is and how much it lies to you and how much it courses through your veins, well, that's what Paul is about to get into. Well, he says, where I would do good, sin is present with me. I find a law, he says, in my members that where I would do good, sin is present. So in order to get there, he has to go through this transition of the second half of chapter 5. And that's what we're going to look at. The comparisons between Adam and Christ. And in so doing, he's going to say, in Adam Everybody became sinful. He's going to say, in Adam, everybody dies. So he's already building his platform for how truly awful sin is. Sin is an enemy. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says death is an enemy, and death is the wage of sin. So sin is truly heinous, especially before an absolutely righteous, holy God. Now, in order to understand the second half of Romans 5, we need to talk about the concept of federal headship. Now, that sounds like a big theological concept, but I can explain it real easily. Anybody here in the room right now, President of the United States, anybody want to raise their hand? No, none of you are the President currently? So there are no presidents of the United States in the room. There is a president of the United States, and he can actually go, get on Air Force One, go to a completely different part of the world, and make commitments on behalf of you. He can go places and commit a billion dollars, and then you're left holding the bag because he went and committed Okay, how does he get away with that? Well, that's why we use the word federal government. What it means is that we have representatives, and those representatives go and speak on our behalf 
and then we are responsible for what they have decided. And so this concept of federal headship in the Bible means that there are certain people in the Bible who did things, who committed to things, who satisfied terms of covenants, and then we're left holding the bag because of what they did. I think one of the most obvious examples of federal headship, just to to show you that the concept really is a very biblical concept, is in Hebrews chapter 7, if you want to turn there. We'll just read a very short snippet of it. Chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews is about Melchizedek, who I do argue is a Christophany. Melchizedek encounters Abraham as Abraham is returning from the war on the plains with the kings after Abraham has defeated those kings. He is returning with all the stuff, all the substance that those kings had originally taken. When Melchizedek appears to Abraham, Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything he's recollected. He pays a tithe, a tenth, to Melchizedek. Now, the writer of Hebrews picks that fact up and says, the very fact that Abraham would pay tithes to Melchizedek proves that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. And Abraham's the one who has the Abrahamic covenant. He's the progenitor of all the Israelites, the Hebrews that are being written to. They look to Abraham as their father. But there's someone greater than Abraham, this Melchizedek. And in order to prove that Melchizedek is even greater than Abraham, he brings up the fact that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And then he says, really interesting, that Levi was in Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek. Why would he choose Levi? Well, because the Levitical priests were the ones who got to collect the tithes. Since they're the ones that were supported by the tithes of all Israel, the writer of Hebrews says, Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, meaning Melchizedek is superior to Abraham and Levi. You get the picture? Levi, who's not alive yet, was in Abraham paying tithe to Melchizedek. That means Abraham was the federal head of Levi because Levi didn't actually pay the tithe, but he paid it symbolically in the fact that his progenitor, his federal head, Abraham, did pay it. That's federal headship. Here, let's read it. Starting at verse 8. Well, starting at verse 7. Starting at verse 6. Genesis 1.1, starting at verse 6. The one whose genealogy is not traced from Levi, there collected a tenth from Abraham, and he blessed the one who had the promises from God. 
God made the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, and yet the superior one blessed him, showing that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. That's what he says in verse 7, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. In other words, what he's saying is right now, at the moment that he was writing this, the Levitical priesthood still existed in the temple in Jerusalem, and right then people still paid tithes to mortal men, the Levites. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, back then with Abraham, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives eternally. He lives on. That's why I argue that Melchizedek is a Christophany. And so, verse 9, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, currently was receiving the tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, all I really want you to gather from that is the concept of federal headship again. When Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, all of his descendants paid tithes to Melchizedek, which means that the Levitical priesthood, who in the writer of Hebrews' day, Wow, was that a terrible sentence. Let's assume for just a moment that Paul wrote Hebrews, okay? And say, well, then in Paul's day, there were still Levites in the temple collecting tithes. But ever since Abraham, his federal head, even Levi paid tithe to Melchizedek. You get the picture? Is it clear to you? Okay, turn to Romans 5 now. Because in Romans 5... Paul is going to argue that in Adam, even though we didn't sin like Adam, in Adam we all sinned. That's federal headship. Now, if you object to the concept of federal headship, then you also have to object when Paul says, but in Christ, all are made alive. So you want to be accredited with Christ's righteousness even though you did not accomplish righteousness in the way that Christ did. So if you don't like the first half of the equation, you can't claim the second half of the equation. You understand that? Okay, now before we go on, I have a little chart that I've made. You want to hand these out? This is just something you can read along and take home with you. Because I made a little chart of all the comparisons that Paul makes between Christ and Adam in Romans 5, 12 to 21. And we'll wait a moment while Tom passes those out. I hope those are helpful in understanding this passage. They're also really, really good for um, putting on the bottom of bird cages and uh, training puppies. I think there should be enough. So we're going to start reading at the very beginning of Romans 5, Romans 5, verse 1. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. You might recall that a couple of weeks ago I said that that is the the term, the privilege of approach, that it is through faith in Christ that we've obtained the privilege of approaching God through that faith into the grace in which we stand. Not only this, says verse 3, but we also exalt or celebrate in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character brings about hope. And hope does not disappoint. The King James says hope does not make ashamed. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the language, by the way. We've been called sinners. We've been called ungodly. We've been called helpless proving that we couldn't have done any of it. It had to be God who did everything for us, and he did it all by his grace, through faith, and that's the way that we have the privilege to approach him. Now, that would be enough. If that was all Paul told us, we'd go, okay, good deal. I feel good about this, Paul. I'm with you. But in verse 9, he says, much more than... Having established all of that, much more than having now been justified by Christ's blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were sinners, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then much more having been reconciled, We shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciling, the reconciliation. And therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. That's the new stuff. Thus endeth the introduction. It's 1130 now. Set your clocks. I'm just starting now. Okay? Okay, good. Let's pick this apart a little bit. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, so far what we know is that sin entered the world through Adam, through his rebellion, through his doing what God specifically told him not to do, that was how sin entered into the world 
And God told Adam, the day you eat of it, you'll die. So death entered into the world because of that one sin. Sin entered the world because of Adam's rebellion. That's how death entered into the world, through sin. And so death spread to all men. Everybody dies. Across the board, everybody dies. Why does everybody die? Sin. Yeah, sin. That's what he's going to say. Because all have sinned. In other words, he's saying that proves that everybody sinned. The very fact that everybody dies proves that everybody sinned. When people try to tell me that they are part of the holiness movement and that since they got saved, they don't sin anymore, whenever they say that, I say, good, then just don't die and I'll believe you. But if you die, then God still accounts you a sinner. And by the way, while you're busy bragging about how you haven't sinned, that's pride, which is a sin. See how pernicious sin is? Okay, so, so far, Paul has told us, through Adam, sin entered into the world, death through sin, and therefore death spread to all men because all sinned. Then he says, almost parenthetically, in verse 13, for until the law, sin was not in the world. In verse 14, he's going to tell you what that means. There was a gap of time between Adam and Moses. It's recorded for us in the Bible. But during that time, there was no law. There was no codified law from Sinai that had all the do's and the don'ts in it. And so he says, during that time, while there was no law in the world, there was no imputation of sin as a result against the law. In fact, he says something very similar to that back in Romans 4.15. He says, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there any violation of the law. So that's an axiomatic truth. The reason that Paul is saying that is so that he can get to his conclusion, which is the law was added to mankind to make sin really, really sinful, to make it really, really obvious how sinful sin is. But where there was no law, he says there there can't be a violation of the law. Where's the place? There's a place out west. I forget if it's Wyoming or South Dakota or something. There's a state out there that has no speed limit. And so you can't get a speeding ticket. Now, you can get a reckless driving ticket if the cop feels that you're going too fast for the safety of the road. But you can't get a speeding ticket because there's no law that says you can't go any faster than this. Same idea. Before God codified the law at Mount Sinai, then there was no way to tell people, hey, the law says don't fill in the blank. Don't steal, and you're stealing from me, and the law says don't steal. He's going to go, what law? There is no law. So the law was added to make sin all the more Obvious. That's what Paul's getting at. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. But were human beings still sinful? Yes. Yes. How do you prove that? They 
they died. Well, Paul's now going to say that as well. Nevertheless, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. So that's the period of time he's talking about. From Adam until Moses, there was no law, but men were still guilty sinners because they still died. So then God decides to add the law so that there's no question about what it looks like to violate his holiness. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. So Adam is a type of Christ, which means that when God made the first man and put him in the Garden of Eden, he was already teaching that Christ was coming. He was already foreshadowing the reality of Christ. How was he foreshadowing that? By making Adam a federal head. By making Adam the person through whom all mankind would become guilty. By teaching that principle, by foreshadowing that principle, God can then send Christ into the world and say everybody that's in Christ is redeemed, forgiven, saved. Not because they're good, not because they're righteous, but because he is their federal head. Get the picture? Get the idea? See what Paul is doing? Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. In other words, all that means is we didn't get to be in the garden. We didn't get to choose whether or not we'd eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We didn't get set up in the same situation Adam was set up in. Nevertheless, because he was our federal head, when he sinned, we all began dying. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him who is to come. Now comes the contrast. Verse 15, now that he's established this whole idea of federal headship, now that he's established this idea that everybody's sinful because we're all in Adam, and nobody on planet Earth can claim that they're not in Adam. Because we're all in Adam and because we've all sinned, that's why we're all dying. But, but, I hope I've made you feel really bad because that's what Paul was trying to do, just so he could get you to the but, on the other hand, the free gift is not like the transgression. Well, in what way is the free gift not like the transgression? Well, now he's going to start contrasting. And that's what your chart in front of you is. It's a series of contrasts between what Adam did and what Christ did. Every one of the contrasts on your chart, I took right out of the text here. The gift, the free gift, the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one, that would be Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace through one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Okay, what is he getting at? He's saying, through Adam and through Adam's sin, the many all became dead. 
but the free gift of God through the grace of God abounded to the many despite the fact that we're not any longer talking about one sin. Adam's fall was a sin, a rebellion. Now we're talking about a multitude. Now we're talking about a multiplicity. Now we're talking about sin on top of sin on top of sin. We're talking about holy God has to put up with a world that is nothing but endless sin, wretchedness. Our hearts are depraved and evil. And we're constantly doing and justifying whatever it is we want to do. And the grace of God deals with all of that sin instead of the single sin of Adam. You starting to get the contrast? But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God. And the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The grace of God abounded over sin. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. That one sin, that single rebellion resulted in the judgment and condemnation of all mankind. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So you've not only got condemnation compared with justification, but you've got the one sin against the endless number of sins, and you've got the rebellion of Adam Versus the kindness and grace of Christ. Are you starting to see the contrast now? The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Verse 17... For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through that one, and that's exactly what happened. Through his single transgression, death was passed on to all human beings. Death reigned much more than those who receive the abundance of grace. Notice how often Paul refers to the abundance of grace. Grace abounding. Grace overflowing. Not just grace enough to help you squeak by but enough grace to be overflowing to all your sin grace sufficient to cover all the sin that God intends to cover abounding grace if by the transgression of the one death reigned through that one much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign through the one Christ Jesus. Again, life, everlasting life, reigns in Christ Jesus, where death reigned in Adam. Adam's single sin caused death to be spread to all mankind. Christ's single sacrifice results in abounding grace that is sufficient to give us the gift of righteousness. 
Notice how often he keeps talking about the gift, the free gift. That's what the word grace means. It means you can't earn it. You can't do anything for it. And so through the grace of God, you receive the free gift of being absolutely righteous, as righteous as God in Christ are, despite the fact that in Adam, you were absolutely wretched and depraved and a deadly sinner. Do you see the contrast? Paul is trying to draw as big a contrast as he possibly can so that he can say through Adam there was sin and sin was heinous and sin spread like wildfire and everybody that's born is a sinner. Everybody that's born, you're born speaking lies. Everybody that's born, the constant intention of your heart is nothing but wickedness only. And that's because you're the offspring of Adam. And you're going to die because that's the wages of sin. He's already told us the wages of sin is death. By contrast, the single sacrifice of Christ, which is why this morning we sang, once for all, oh, brother, believe it. Once for all, oh, sinner, receive it. It's such good news. Through the single sacrifice of Christ, We get the free gift of righteousness, which is a gift of grace on top of that grace abounding that utterly covers not just the one sin that started it all, but covers the great multitude of sins so that we could stand before God and be accounted, be imputed with absolute righteousness. So this is really as far away from each other as he can contrast them. Death versus life. Depravity versus righteousness. Just as far away from each other as he can get them. And everybody in Adam is a sinner who dies. And everybody in Christ is a redeemed saint who ever lives. You got that? You're sitting too far back, Eileen. Can you sit up here, please? Because when I just said that, She just went, yes, yes. And that's the right response. Fist pumping in the air. That's the right response. By the way, you weren't here as we were beginning, and I was talking about how emotional we were a couple weeks ago and how proper doctrine leads to proper emotion. There it was right there. We just read proper doctrine, and it's real thick and heavy doctrine. And what did it do? It made her really happy. Proper emotion is appropriate with proper doctrine. All right, so let's read everything up till now, and and then we'll go on from there, because he's still going to keep contrasting, but I'm breaking this down so much, I don't want you to miss Paul's flow of thought. Starting at verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for If by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God 
and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through that one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, verse 18, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Now don't get hung up on the all men there because just a moment ago we also read the many and justification to the many and sin to the many. And we know how many sinned? All. So Paul's use of the many and the all, don't let that create a new theology where you start saying, well, there it is right there. Jesus died for everybody because he brought justification to all men. It's all kinds of men. It's all types of men. Everybody, Jew or Gentile, can come to Christ and receive the free gift of justification. But listen to that verse. So then, as through one transgression, just one, he just did one thing, one little lousy thing, one stupid little lousy thing. You'd think he'd be able to justify his way out of that. And he tried, put on his fig leaves, tried to make it okay. He even got a little braggadocious when God said, Adam, where are you? And he said, oh, we realized we were naked, so... You know, we heard you and we hid, like we're doing you the favor. We're being really good, God. God says, did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat from? That was the one little thing. And what did he do? Starts justifying the woman you gave me. It's her fault. Clearly. Because she said that I should eat from it. She gave it to me to eat, so I ate it, but it's her fault. What does she do? justifies herself the serpent he tempted me and I did eat nobody's fessing up nobody's taking responsibility nobody's starting with I absolutely sinned against you please forgive me no what does God do kills an animal covers them with animal skins he's already teaching imputed justification he's already teaching the necessity of a sacrifice in order to cover their sin So right away, as soon as there's a sinner, God starts teaching again how he's going to solve the sin problem. And what do sinners do? The same thing sinners always do. They get busy justifying. You know, in my case, it's different. Sure, it's a sin for all of you. But see, you don't understand my situation. My my situation's different. So I'm driven by my situation to do that thing. But but for you, yeah, definitely. You know, that's a rule for you. And in fact, I'm I'm gonna sit in judgment on you if you ever do it. I didn't mean to point right at Jeff, but I, <laughs> I if you ever do it, I'm gonna judge you. But 
my situation is that you don't understand. No, sin is sin is sin is sin. You're dying because of your sin. You're dying because you're a sinner. It doesn't matter how many ways you excuse it. It doesn't matter how many times you try to justify it. Your sin is killing you. That's why you need Christ. Because you can't be good enough to make up for how much sin you've already accumulated. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to everybody. Did you get that? Through Adam's sin, because he's our federal head, through his sin, condemnation then came to all human beings. And you see that in the book of Genesis. It's not very long after, what do we got, seven generations? And then we get to Methuselah, and we get to Noah, and then God floods the world. Because the constant thought of all humans on the planet was nothing but evil, wickedness continually. So, true to form, Adam sinned, everybody's guilty, God condemns everybody because of that one sin. Paul really wants to drive that home so you can feel the wonderfulness of the contrast. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness. What was that one act of righteousness? The crucifixion, through Christ going to Golgotha, through Christ taking your sin in our place, through that one act of righteousness in comparison to that one sin in the garden, through that one act of righteousness there resulted, instead of condemnation, justification and justification of life. That means everything about you, everything in your life, everything in your eternal life has been eternally justified. When God looks at you now, according to Paul, you're going to see it coming up. He's getting you ready for it. He's setting the stage for it. By the time he gets to Romans 8 and starts saying that whoever God predestined, those were the ones that he called. And the ones he called, he justified. And the ones he justified, he glorified. He's getting you ready for that by saying that single sacrifice of Christ was sufficient to justify you throughout your life. Justification of life to everybody who's in Christ. Are you starting to feel why you need Christ? That's really all I'm getting at. It's really all Paul is getting at. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. How many? How many were made sinners through that disobedience? All. Everybody. Everybody was made sinners through that one act of disobedience, which is why I said don't get too hung up on the all, because the all and the many keep exchanging places here. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one, Christ, the many will be made righteous. That's how simple it is. That's the essence of the whole Bible wrapped up right there. There was one man, Adam. He was disobedient. Therefore, we're all sinners. There was another man, Christ. He was obedient, and as a result, everybody in him will be made righteous. That's it. That's why I keep saying, 
you need Jesus because that is the solution to your sin problem. And if you don't think you have a sin problem, that's how bad your sin problem is. Because your ego has got you convinced that you're not that bad. Your sinfulness is lying to you and telling you you're not as bad as other people. And as long as there's somebody like Kellen, we can all go, well, I'm not that bad. (laughs) Sorry, I just chose Kellen because he was sitting there. That'll teach you to sit up front. Every week I say, come on, sit up closer. And then the people who sit up front get picked on. And that's why they all sit way back there. I think I just figured something out. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Okay, so why did the law come in? Verse 20, now that he's already explained that there was a period of time where there was no law, well then why did God add the law? The law came in so that the transgression might increase. Okay, now people who preach the law will tell you that if you just follow these rules of the law, you can be more righteous. God will be more satisfied with you. You can achieve your own justification before God if you just follow the law. That's never what the law was for. The law was never given to save anybody. By the way, if you want to check that, How many people so far of the billions of people that have been on the planet and of the Israelites who generation after generation tried to keep the law, how many people have been saved by it so far? There'd be none because it can't save. That wasn't its purpose. The purpose of the law was to make sin that much more obvious. Remember earlier I said, There's a state, whatever that state is, let's pretend it's Wyoming. Somebody on the internet will correct me. But let's say it's Wyoming where there's no speed limit. And I said, you can't get a speeding ticket because there's no speed limit posted. Is it Montana? Okay, good. Now we know. It's Montana. So stop writing. Back away from the keyboard. We know it's Montana now. They just passed a speed limit. Right. They just passed a speed limit. Which means the day before, you could drive any speed you wanted. And the day they posted the speed limit, they can give you a ticket for speeding. The day before, you could do 120. Just happy, 140, just driving through Montana, just yee. And then they put up a sign that says, speed limit 75. And you do 120 again, you're going to jail. And you can argue, but yesterday, this wasn't a crime. And they'll say, that's right, but now we made a law. And what did that law do? It made you guilty when you did the same thing you did yesterday. You get the picture? You get the idea? God added the law to Israel so that the stuff they were already doing would be that much more sinful. So that they would finally recognize that what they were doing was sinful. That was the whole point and purpose of the law. Was to say that stuff that I didn't condemn you for yesterday. You do it today. 
well, I'm going to condemn you for it. I'm going to judge you for it because you knew better because here's the law. The law came in so that the transgression might increase. But where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's the good news. There's the contrast. God added the law so that sin would be incredibly heinous and sinful and depraved and awful. Why? So that Christ would get that much glory in saving people that were in that condition. So that more grace would abound to the people that were in Christ. Verse 21. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's his conclusion. And what's his conclusion? Grace, 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 grace. You can't do it. You can't make yourself good enough. You can't justify yourself. You're not righteous. Give up on yourself. Grace. It's all grace. It's got to be grace. It can't be anything except grace because sin reigned through death. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I'm not going to read chapter 6, but the very first verse of chapter 6 is a result of everything we just read. So we have to go to it for just a moment. What are we going to say then? Chapter 6, verse 1. What are we going to say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound all the more? So that grace may increase? You know there's somebody out there. Who's thinking, well, if grace is God's great glory, I'll give him something more that he can work with so that he gets all the more glory and I'll just be a really reprehensible sinner for Jesus so that Jesus has somebody to save where he gets maximum glory out of saving somebody like me. Paul says, well, if grace is abounding to you, covering your sin should you then sin all the more so that grace gets to abound all the more and of course his answer is verse 2 no never may it never be how shall we who died to sin still live in sin okay so that's where he's going next He's now set us up theologically for what's coming in chapter 6. And the way he established it, the way he got us there, was by talking about the contrast between Jesus and Adam. By the way, that's not the only place that he makes that comparison. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, I do believe it is. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 45. He makes the same comparison. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. But the last Adam, the last man, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So he loves to contrast Adam and Jesus. And he keeps saying, what Adam lost for us, Jesus gained for us. The first man became a living soul. 
but that meant life had to be given to him. The last Adam, Christ, became the life-giving spirit. So he wasn't having to have life given to him. He has life within him, and he gives life to others. However, verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Adam would be the natural one. Christ would be the spiritual one. Verse 47, the first man, Adam, is from the earth. He's earthy. The second man, Christ, is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. We're all in Adam. And because we're in Adam and he's sinful, therefore we're all sinful. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. But as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. In other words, if you're in Adam, you've got nothing but sin and death to look forward to. But if you are in Christ, the one who gives life, you've got nothing but eternal life to look forward to. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that'd be me, I've borne the image of Adam. I don't know how many of you would be willing to testify to that, but I have borne the image of Adam. I gave Adam a run for his money. He had one. I have the multitude. I have rebelled and rebelled. I have borne the image of Adam, and I'm willing to admit it because I love the second half of the sentence. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to bearing the image of the heavenly. And who is the heavenly? Christ, which is why Paul will say in Romans that God predestined certain people to be conformed to the image of his son. We're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, which is what God intended. That standard Pauline theology, he brings it up again and again. The contrast between Adam and Christ is to show the distance between what we are by nature and what Christ has accomplished for us by his one sacrifice. New nature the new nature that he gives us. And that, that is what we're supposed to preach. Preach the word. Doesn't it feel good? Aren't you happy about that? I felt so good it made my voice crack. It's, it's just such good news to know that Christ is our federal head and what he accomplished, he accomplished on our behalf. And that is just really good news. No matter how bad what you did. Yeah. No matter how bad. Abundant grace. That's why it has to be abundant. I need a really abundant grace because I'm a really abundant sinner. I need a God who saves completely because if he leaves any of it up to me, I'm doomed. I got nothing. And the older I get, the more aware I am of the fact that I got nothing. Because it's too late for me to fix anything. And I lay in bed some nights and think about where I've been and what I've done. And just shudder. Just think, oh, thank God for Christ. Thank God for the abundant grace. Thank goodness for the blood of Christ. That's right. That will cover every sin. Are there any questions about that? Is it really that clear? It is. Well, that's because the word of God is really that clear. 
Is it worth saying, preach the word again? Yes. I mean, the word of God is just that clear. Anybody here happy right now? Yes. Yeah, well, that's an appropriate emotion to sound doctrine. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.